0: Hello and welcome to World Canvas from international programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr and we're coming to you from film scene in downtown Iowa City and happy to have you with us this afternoon. We're going to have an interesting night tonight exploring the age of the Anthropocene through the lens of energy, investigating the global environmental transformation that has resulted from humans' astonishing technological achievements, whether inspired by the desire for greater creature comfort, more productive and predictable harvests urban development, or any of a thousand other things, our insatiable desire to control our environment has led to almost unimaginable feats of scientific investigation and ingenuity, allowing millions to live in comfort and ease like never before. But the benefits that flow from harnessing the Earth's resources for power and energy are not shared equally by all nor are they produced without significant and potentially catastrophic damage to the landscapes that fill our literature, inspire the world's artists, and will be the home for generations to come. I'd like to introduce my guests in this first segment of World Canvas. Uh, Just next to me is Bradley Kramer, assistant professor in the University of Iowa Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences. Thank you for being here, Brad. Thank you for having me. Mm, Pleasure. And next to him is Tyler Proust. Hi, Ty. uh, He's an associate professor in the University of Iowa Department of History. Thank you. Great to be here. Mm, Thank you. And Barbara Eckstein is at the far end. She's a professor in the University of Iowa Department of English. And these three people are responsible for organizing a symposium that is sponsored principally by the Obermann Center for Advanced Studies uh, that we'll be talking about during this segment and that many of you will have the chance to experience during the next few days. So I think our task as we begin this conversation uh, will go first to you. Brad, I'd like you to define for us what the Anthropocene is.
1: The Anthropocene as a term, uh, it's very comical to begin this discussion by trying to define it because it is yet to be defined. and there is actually an organizational body (coughs) of geologists who are responsible for doing things like naming official time periods. Okay, so very much the same way that Pluto is no longer a planet, Mm -hmm. right? That happened because a group of people who are responsible for such things got together and voted and decided it is no longer a planet. Same thing with the geosciences. There is a group of people who are responsible for making the decisions on what we call each individual period of time. Okay, Here in the last 15, 20, 25, 30, depends on how you want to define it. years. This concept that we are in a new interval of Earth history where humans are the dominant motive changing force within the entire global environment has really begun to solidify around this idea that we needed a new term called Anthropocene. Mm -hmm. And it would be the Anthropocene Age, most likely, um, that it would be introduced as. And that this is the new era or the new age in which we live. The debate that is going on within the geological community is we have some very difficult and sticky rules as to how one defines intervals of Earth history. And the primary holdup is that we define them based upon rocks. Well, if we're defining an interval that's only a couple of hundred years old, there are no rocks yet that are only a couple of hundred years old. So we're having this difficulty of, is it a cultural concept and a sort of construct within how we think about our role on the planet mm-hmm. in search of a geological definition or is it a geological thing in search of a broader cultural context? Mm-hmm. And so there is a very large public scientist debate going on this summer over in Austria that's going to hopefully begin to <laughs> come to some conclusions about this topic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but in general, this is the the concept of the Anthropocene as it is yet to be Merkley defined, right. I think, would be the way to say it.
0: But if we were to think about um, what's changed in the last 1,000, 2,000, or 20 years, or 50 years, what is it that, that has so significantly um, changed in the way humans interact with the environment that now people may be thinking we're in a new, a new age or new era?
1: Okay, so all of the components of the Earth system feed back on one another. So every plant, every animal, every organism who does currently or has ever existed plays some role in what we now call the Earth system. So this is another 30, 40-year-old sort of concept where instead of thinking about just the plants or just the animals or just the ocean, we now approach it as as a totality of the Earth system. In terms of what humans' impact are on that, the most obvious places to find that are things like CO2 levels in the atmosphere. Things like what's happening to global temperature, what is happening to <coughs> different elements that you're finding in the ocean. There is, of course, natural variability within the Earth system. That's not the issue. The issue is there is now becoming an imprint that is clearly the result of processes that humans are responsible mm-hmm. for. Mm-hmm. And those are the items that we're trying to begin to define. I mean, Ty will talk about some of this stuff um, hopefully in just a second, but the. The consensus is starting to form around wanting to put it at a, put the onset of the Anthropocene essentially at the onset of the Industrial Revolution, mm-hmm. simply because that's the easiest place to identify changes in CO2 that are undoubtedly man-made.
0: Right, right. Well, that does lead us directly into you, Ty, and, and the question of what energy has to do with the Anthropocene. Well, the
2: Anthropocene, the metaphor of the Anth- Anthropocene can be mean a lot of different things. And I like to think of the geological metaphor of the Anthropocene, inviting us to reconsider our relationship to the resources of deep geological time, primarily coal and oil and gas, uh, which power our, so- our society. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you, we can think about what is energy. You know, there, there are di- different ways to define energy, just like there are different ways to define Anthropocene. You know, for physicists, it's the physical properties of matter that uh, enable the ability to do work or we more conventionally think of energy as the physical <coughs> and chemical resources that, that power our society. But I also like to think of energy in human terms. Uh, energy is a, a social relation. Uh, we also use the term energy to refer to human strength and vitality. And uh, so I am interested in investigating energy, not as you know, BTUs or kilowatts or barrels of oil or you know cubic meters of natural gas, but how do we use it? How do we think about it? Uh, what are, how, how do our beliefs about energy shape the way we use it, and, and vice versa? Uh, humans are a very adaptable species. one. You know the thing that the thing about the Anthropocene is uh, we are we ha- we're, ha- we're making these large scale impacts on the environment, but we are a species that is able to recognize it. Uh, so someone has said that the Anthropocene is a process that reflects upon itself, and um, you know hu- energy implies that, that humans have the ingenuity, the vitality, the innovation to do something about the problems, the environmental problems we face. Um, In the Anthropocene, it generally is seen as something very negative or apocalyptic. Um, Elizabeth Colbert, who's a journalist, has said that that the words Anthropocene and good should never be used in the same sentence. Um, And responding to Andrew Revkin, who is saying, who holds out much more optimism and hope about our ability to ad- adapt to the circumstances of our own making, mm-hmm. um, and so energy, yes, in in the, in the resources that we use, and the, and the lights in the room, and the and the transportation fuels that allow us to move around in, in unprecedented ways, are one way of looking at it. But there's a whole range of ways that we can think about energy.
0: Yeah, um, human activity going way 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 back has always altered. The Earth in some way, right? In large ways, small ways, perhaps uh, whatever else is happening in terms of, um, you know, uh, weather and, um, you know, th- other environmental things that are happening outside of human control. We have always, whether by, you know, starting fires someplace, burning down a forest, or you know, whatever, going way back, we've always had an influence on our environment in some way. The difference with the Anthropocene is just the massive nature of the impact.
2: Oh, I would say so. There, there is there is debate about when the Anthropocene mm-hmm. began, e- even among non-geologists. Mm-hmm. You know, do, do do we date it to 8,000 years ago when humans began to domesticate animals and and, and agriculture, or 5,000 years ago when you started to see signals of methane <laughs> in the atmosphere? Uh, but Paul Crutzen, the the Nobel laureate chemist who sort of popularized this term, dates it to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution around 1800. Uh, Mainly because that's the beginning of, uh, that is the moment when humans, when something dramatic changed in our mode of life, civilization and relationship to the environment and it it has primarily, the primary reason is the, the adoption of concentrated forms of energy, first with coal, then with oil and gas. Which is, uh, you know, has enabled our species to grow from one one billion people in 1800 to seven billion people today. Uh, energy has, is, is what has made us a successful species, but it's also in- increasingly become a threat, and and that is our dilemma. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charles Mann, and and the one of the underlying questions that really animates concern about this is, uh, you know. What kind of trade-off are we going to make between energy and climate change? Mm-hmm. You know, energy is what, uh, intensive uses of energy uh, is what explains our success. There, uh, you can correlate intensive u- uses of energy with indicators of social well-being, uh, you know, across the board. And how are we going to deal with both the negative and positive aspects mm-hmm. of this?
0: Well, so I know the symposium that's coming up, and also this program is using a term "energy cultures." What do we mean by energy cultures in the age of well the Anthropocene? Yeah, you
2: know that, that uh, we all don't use, we all see energy in different ways. We use energy in different ways. Um, you know, our beliefs shape the way we use energy, and vice versa. Uh, and y- and you c- and look at how different cultures have. Um, embraced or, or or use energy differently. There's a very interesting, uh, uh, there's a scholar coming from Norway who looks at the impact of electricity in in rural Africa and in Islamic culture. And uh, she, I hope she's able to talk about how just illuminating a room changes the gender dynamics and social dynamics in, in that culture in ways that we just take for granted. Because we expect the lights to always be on and uh, we don't really pay attention to where the electricity comes from except out of the wall. Mm-hmm. In the socket in the wall, we don't, you know, look behind that. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's we're coming to a point where we, we have to think beyond the wall. Where it comes from, you know, who it affects, uh, you know, who is disadvantaged by the way we use energy, who, who benefits. Um, who's living in energy wealth and who's living in energy poverty. Uh, We need to, you know, I think there's some consensus that we need to scale back our use of uh, carbon uh, fuels, carbon-based fuels, fossil fuels, but you also have to remember that 1.3 billion people in the world don't have electricity. 18 percent of the population, you know. Um, 38 percent or something like 2.6 billion don 't have access to clean cooking facilities for those people they need more energy they need more cheap energy and, tha- and therein is the dilemma for you know the, the world as a whole
0: well I love this phrase you used a minute ago we need to think beyond the wall that's for me a r- really sharp image and and Barbara I'd like to turn to you you're from the Department of English and you know you're a scholar of literature and many things but I know you've also been for a long time uh, inspired by interested in kind of the way the environment and culture, uh, the changes in natural landscapes affect people and, uh, the things we leave behind, what does something like the Anthropocene, um, have to do with the humanities?
3: Well, I was thinking as Brad was defining it that there's a kind of central irony for the humanities in this term, Anthropocene, because it really, for humanists, Decenters the human who's always been at the center of a humanistic study rather than to um, suddenly bring the, the human to the center, uh, in, in the sense that uh, we study the the products of civilizations and cultures uh, over the lifetime of humanity, which compared to Rocks is very short. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, when called upon. To place our production in the kind of system that Brad is talking about, then, then we're no longer in the center. We're, we're part of a mesh. And, and that's it, that that really redefines everything we do from the beginning, which for me is one of the most exciting things about this conversation and all conversations like this. So it isn't just a question of what will cultural production be like going forward, but what does cultural production look like from the beginnings of human cultural production, if we imagine not humans at the center, but humans as part of an of an Earth system? So that that's really the the question that that animates my work. And there's a, a, a an image that really uh, or two actually that solidified this anthropocene uh, idea in my mind. Uh, and w- one had to do with uh, a YouTube video that uh, was um, uh, put together by the very famous naturalist, Attenborough, the the, um, the British uh, naturalist. And he's in uh, Australia in a, in a forest, and he's uh, stalking <laughs> in the way that he does um, a bird called a Lyle bird. And this bird is just an extraordinary, some may know, an extraordinary imitator of of other sounds, and mostly other birds. And so this bird has survived and (coughs) and thrived uh, because of its ability to imitate others and therefore fool others. But uh, what's so extraordinary in this video is that the bird uh, not only imitates other uh, bird sounds, but it imitates the shutter of a camera. it perfectly so if you heard it apart from the bird you would think it was the shot of a camera and uh, so so this immediately uh, raises questions about the enmeshing of humans and these other species but then uh, Attenborough shows the bird uh, imitating a chainsaw and and then and then we're in a whole other set of questions that are not just about our uh, intrusion on its space as tourists but are our demands on on its resources that it needs and and who will who will get the benefit of, of these resources. Um, the, other, the other image that sticks in my mind is another use of chainsaws that I was introduced to uh, that that uh, is a, a, a kind of activity uh, of humans against humans that we're all too familiar with. And it's an image of uh I- Israeli soldiers with chainsaws uh, cutting down very ancient olive trees on the uh, property of Palestinian peoples and the mayhem uh, around this this activity and so if I if I put those two images together then not only do we have this in meshing but we continue to have in an intensified in an intensified way uh, Questions of uh, human inequalities and human struggles over space and resources. So for a humanist, there's a tremendous amount of work to be done. Mm.
0: Wow. Well, while I have all three of you here, maybe I can ask you to tell us a little bit about some of the things you, uh, questions you hope to answer or at least have discussed at the upcoming symposium. What are the things that are primary in your mind that you hope these keynote speakers and others will be able to uh, elucidate?
1: One of the things I would love to have a broader discussion on, and this came up in our seminar that we're running right now for uh, graduate students here at the university, was the term Anthropocene is anthropocentric, um, which is an odd way to think about it, but it really is. There have been many species in Earth history that have actually had much larger impacts on the planet than humans have. So when Earth first was formed, there was no oxygen in our atmosphere. And so it was microbial life that turned us from a predominantly sulfidic and CO2 atmosphere into having oxygen in it. And this was wonderful. When plants invaded the land, that completely altered the planet once again. So we're not the first to ever have, you know, entirely earth-shattering, to use (laughs) that phrase, um, sort of impacts on the planet. The fundamental difference is that we're the first sentient self-aware species to have that impact on the planet and be aware of what we're doing. To me, this is the natural bridge between the scientific component about the nuts and bolts of the chemistry and physics of the climate Mm -hmm. with the humanist component of the humanities overall Mm -hmm. in where does that now take us,
2: bridging that gap between those two entities
0: you, What, what are you most interested in?
2: Well, I'm a historian, so I like to think in terms of time. And, you know, B- Barbara mentioned time and how the Anthropocene sort of disrupts our notions of, of time, uh, and, and our place in larger h- Earth history, right? Uh, and, you know, it may, the, 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 the difficult thing about the Anthropocene for me as a historian is I like to look backwards but it but it forces us to think about the future, and h- how time is going to, you know, evolve or how time is going to progress. We, we there are different kinds of time. There's geological time, there's political time, and we know in this country that political time moves very slowly now, and it and it move it's moving too slowly, for for people who feel that we're in a crisis. Uh, and, and then, as a you know, in a more academic sense, you know, how how is it? How how might this um, make us re-periodize our understanding of human history? Uh, if we think of the energy, rev- uh, the industrial revolution, as more of an energy revolution than a revolution in property rights or, you know, uh, mechanical innovation, you know, there's a, there's a lot of really interesting questions. I think that we start thinking about time and, and decentering ourselves from our understanding of, of time on Earth.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Barbara, what discussions do you hope to have over these next few days?
3: One that Im- immediately comes to mind is is maybe not so much uh, directly within the humanities, but is, is uh, underwrites the, the whole of what we do here, and it, it has to do with helping people understand what what the words climate change mean. And and that too has to do with time and our ability to conceive of time that's beyond uh, human history in relation to human history, so that we understand how uh, climate changes of the of the deep past have differed from from this one. Uh, and I, I think it's a it's a fundamental Education that we all need. I feel so I need to go to the Natural History Museum about once a month to remind myself, ten thousand years back, <laughs> thirty thousand years back, you know to try and continue to remember uh, this this the way in which deep time is different from human time. Uh, so so that's uh, certainly uh, something that I hope people will gain from the experience.
0: Well, I, I think it's true that the issue of climate change as an international issue or discussion point um, has clearly you know, risen risen uh, much, much higher over the last few years. And a lot of people I know consider this to be a very critical time right now. What we do now is going to have uh, big impact one generation, two generations down the road. But what is your feeling? We're in an academic setting here. What is your feeling within the larger um, political climate? Um, uh, clearly, you think that we need to have more understanding. Do we have the tools to make the changes that we need to make, at least at a you know, preliminary level, to see ourselves progressing toward a better future in regard to, to climate change um, issues? I, I'll just sure. ask anyone who wants to answer. Well,
1: I mean, to get slightly philosophical about sure, it for a moment, there sure. was a, a really good quote by Carl Sagan where he was asked, if you were able to run into an alien civilization, what was the first question you would ask? And it was I- his response was in response to actual nuclear weapons, not mm-hmm. about climate mm-hmm. change, but the same sort of concept applies here. Mm-hmm. And his question would have been, how did you survive your technological adolescence? That interval of time in which you had the capacity to seriously hinder your own ability to survive, <laughs> but you had not yet developed the humanity, if you could apply that in this mm-hmm. sentence, to get over those problems Mm -hmm. and to me
2: that's kind of where we are with Mm -hmm. much of this question. Mm
4: -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. It's hard for me to speculate about the future. I resist Mm -hmm. doing that because (laughs) I've studied too many uh, speculations about the future that have been proven wrong and that's what gives me hope because uh, there have been a lot of doomsday predictions uh, in the last several hundred years. Mm -hmm. Almost every one of them has not been as dire as As it turned out to be, and maybe I'm just being pol- Pollyanna about it, mm-hmm. but I really think uh, there are some easy things we can do to uh, to reduce our energy t- consumption, to change it. To mm-hmm. That's the thing about humans; unlike every other species, is we are highly adaptable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I, I, you know, I've for some reason, I'm becoming more of an optimist in my old age. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We should leave you on that <laughs> happy note, then. That's great. That's great. So I want to say thank you very much to Barbara Eckstein, to Ty Priest, and to Brad Kramer for starting us off so well on this first of uh, three-part series, of first segment on um, the Anthropocene and energy cultures. And thank you all for listening uh, to this uh, group of guests, really very uh, interesting and inspiring. And please stay with us for the second segment in this program, where we'll look at uh, the environment as a right. Um, as a reminder, you're invited to come to these live shows at Film Scene and I, was. City, or you can catch them later on UITV, YouTube, iTunes, and the International Program's website, which is international.uiowa.edu. You can uh, learn more about film scene at ICFilmScene.org. I'm Joan Kerr for International Programs here at the University of Iowa. Thank you very much for coming, and we'll see you next time. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from FilmScene in downtown Iowa City. This is part two of our three-part series on energy cultures and the age of the Anthropocene. I'd like to remind you that you're invited to attend these live programs at Scene if you have the time and you're in the Iowa City area. Or you can catch them later on UITV, YouTube, iTunes, and the International Program's website. And you can learn more about FilmScene at icfilmscene.org. In this segment, we're going to look at environment as a right. And my guests in this segment are Nicholas Brown, Visiting Assistant Professor in the University of Iowa Department of American Studies. Thank you for being here, Nick. Mm-hmm. And next to him is Mike Carberry, who's a Johnson County Supervisor. Thanks for being here, Mike. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. And at the far end we have University of Iowa student Andrew Hurst. Um, he's also on the Sustainability Advisory uh, Committee. And uh, and thank you very much for being here and thank sharing you your afternoon well. with us. Appreciate it. So um, Nick, I'd like to start with you first. Uh, you heard the first portion of our mm-hmm. program on energy cultures in the age of the Anthropocene, and I'd like to talk a little bit about how Energy needs, energy use, energy availability affects societies large and small. Mm
5: -hmm. many ways, of course. Mm. Um, I think for me, um, when um, thinking about the Anthropocene, thinking about humans as a a geologic force, I immediately go to the question about uh, human difference. Um, And I think the Anthropocene is a challenge and an opportunity to really think differently about um, human difference about uh, race, about class, about gender um, and about the differential um, impacts in the context of climate change, in the context of uh, energy use, extraction um, and so forth. Um, so I think it presents um, um, an opportunity and a challenge to, um, to reimagine uh, society, but it also requires that we really foreground, for me, questions about social justice, questions about environmental justice uh, um, in relation to climate change and, and uh, I think um, the um, an- uh, environmental justice movement, a uh, social movement that uh, emerged in the uh, early 1980s is uh, a really important um, um, sort of precedent for us as, as we confront a crisis uh, of, of uh, changing climates today.
0: So help us understand that concept. What, what is the concept of environmental justice? What is that movement?
5: Um, the environmental justice movement, I think, on the most fundamental level is about the uneven distribution of uh, climate um, or uh, environmental burdens and benefits. So we can think in terms of uh, landfills, for example, where are landfills sited and what communities. Um, uh, often, um, as uh, has been the case. They're cited in communities that lack political power. They're cited in communities um, uh, with primarily low-income residents. Cited in communities of color, um, um, and uh, uh, not in. Uh, you can you can look at Chicago, for example, and and think about um, uh, where uh, coal-fired power plants are located. They're not on the north side of the city. They're predominantly on the south side of the city, the lower-income um, um, uh, part of part of Chicago. Um, So environmental justice is fundamentally a struggle to um, address questions about participation in political processes to ensure fair distribution of uh, burdens and also benefits. So I think it's important to recognize that uh, environmental justice is not simply a fight against um, a landfill, um, against an industrial facility, but also the uh, assertion of a right to a healthy environment. Mm -hmm. Um, The struggle for a different way of... uh, living on this planet and coexisting with other people, um, and uh, other, uh, critters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: So I can imagine that, um, you, you mentioned the case of Chicago, you mentioned some established plants that are already there, um, but, um, going forward, I guess the, the fight becomes one with city councils or with development boards or whatever to try to, th- is that where the environmental justice, uh, movement stands up and says we need to consider this community, mm-hmm. that may be um, a poorer community than, you know, Winnetka, but um, yeah. y- you know, I mean, I- is this is this where you take that fight? Does it go to development boards, urban planning groups?
5: It, it does. I think the fight occurs simultaneously on, on multiple levels. Um, um, uh, so it is very much a fight against a specific uh, facility, against a specific uh, location. Um, Uh, and a fight that occurs within the political and legal system but it's also I think simultaneously a fight that occurs outside that system and at the same time that it that is uh, um, advocating for a different um, sort of short-term solution. It's advocating for um, a fundamental transformation of the way in which we live uh, uh, together, um, the way in which we produce and consume energy. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the of st- the best examples of uh, struggles for environmental justice are ones that operate on, on multiple levels mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. as opposed to just being about um, uh, uh, a particular facility um, moving that somewhere else obviously we generate trash uh, it needs to go somewhere so the expression uh, NIMBY or NIMBYism not in my backyard um, I think uh, is an example of um, a more sort of narrow um, uh, understanding of mm-hmm. environmental justice. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: so could you talk to us a little bit about some of the uh, issues indigenous peoples have had regarding uh, access to energy and then also some of these kinds of fights we've just been discussing? Sure.
5: Um, I think a really great example of environmental justice is uh, a uh, proposed mine um, in northern Wisconsin um, in the uh, the Pinocchio Hills. Um, this is a mine that was proposed back in 2011, um, an open pit uh, iron ore mine. Uh, that is directly upstream from the Bad River Indian Reservation, um, just uh, a few dozen miles from uh, Lake Superior. And this is a uh, mine that was um, proposed uh, with zero consultation. Uh, the tribe was not asked. The tribe has been uh, vehement in their opposition to um, this mine um, and have stated um, very matter-of-factly that they believe it would result in their, their genocide, their death, having this, this massive. It would be one of the largest... Open pit mines in the world uh, directly upstream um, from um, the tribe, um, and interestingly, uh, just just last week, just a few days ago, the the Klein Group, uh, GTAC, uh, the corporation that proposes mine, is uh, withdrawing, um, uh, given the sort of, uh, resistance that uh, they have faced among uh, uh, indigenous peoples in Wisconsin and non-indigenous peoples mm-hmm. as well. So mm-hmm. it's an example, too, of um, some really important. Um, um, mm-hmm. Coalition building or alliances that have that have mm-hmm. formed um, among native people and non-native peoples. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think more generally it's it's uh, um, indigenous peoples, along with other um, uh, groups, are often on the front lines of the the climate crisis, um, often feel the effects and have contributed little to the the causes mm-hmm. um, And uh, pretty much anywhere you look. You can find examples of this, the Keystone, struggle over the Keystone pipeline right now. Um, Other pipelines related to the uh, tar sands in uh, Alberta are a really good example of of, uh, indigenous communities rising up and saying, no, we don't want this. Mm -hmm. um, We don't want this here. We don't want this flowing through uh, our land, through our traditional territories.
0: um, um, Mm -hmm. Mm So... When it comes to a community like Iowa City, um, how do we how do we approach our own community um, governments, um, activist groups in our own areas, um, corporate groups in our own areas to get them to consider some of the questions that we've been talking about here climate justice, environmental justice as we move forward with you know progress.
5: Mm-hmm. I think. Um I've been. I have a particular interest in, in thinking about climate change within a within a, uh, a colonial context of so mm-hmm. trying to understand how colonialism, as both a historic event and an ongoing process, um, is contributing to um, to climate change. Um, uh, and um, uh, I was struck uh, this past fall. Um, and Iowa City celebrated its one hundred seventy fifth anniversary. Um, that uh, discussions about uh, the city, its history included no sort of mention of the people who were here before, um, Mm -hmm. specifically the Meskwaki villages that were located right um, uh, here in what is now now Iowa City. Um, And so I believe there is a real need to sort of come to terms with the the history um, Mm -hmm. of colonization. and uh, its ongoing forms. And think about uh, the role that that plays uh, driving as being one of uh, a handful of drivers Mm -hmm. of of climate change. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think building bridges between um, groups uh, groups here in Iowa City such as um, Iowa City Climate Advocates uh, and the Coalition for Racial Justice. Mm -hmm. Issues that ostensibly on the surface appear unrelated. I think there are some um, when we start thinking about root causes of uh, a climate crisis, climate change, um, there are some some important intersections um, that um, can be be bridged. And again, I think that's one of the sort of challenges and invitations, opportunities that uh, the Anthropocene uh, presents mm-hmm. to us.
0: Good. Well, thank you. Well, that that leads us um, very naturally into a conversation with Mike Carberry. Uh, Mike's a longtime advocate for environmental causes, and he's worked for many years as a volunteer and as professional trying to advance discussion of climate change. And he ran for the office of Johnson County Supervisor in 2014 on a platform promoting sustainable growth and protection of. I was agricultural land from residential development. Uh, Mike won that election. He's now a member of the Johnson County Board of Supervisors. And uh, so, Mike, uh, you can either pick up directly on what Nick has just said here or give us a little bit of background into how you got into this environmental uh, fight many years ago in your own life.
6: Well, I got into it through politics. And um, I was working on Al Gore's campaign uh, for president in the late 90s. And when you work on a political campaign, you read their book. Every candidate has a book. I read his book, and it was called uh, uh, Earth in the Balance, and it changed my life. I had never heard of global warming. We didn't even call it climate change then. But I realized that this was going to be the defining issue of our generations. Future generations will look at us and say, you knew, and you didn't do anything, or thank God that you did. And so I started volunteering with the Sierra Club and other groups. Um, and in 2005 I put out my own shingle and I have a a company called Green State Solutions where I uh, work on climate change solutions so I've worked on fighting new coal plants on new nuclear power plants I've sat on the board of the Iowa Wind Energy Association for 10 years I was the lobbyist for Tim Dwight uh, who's in the solar business for a couple years Um, and so I've always worked on climate change solutions I've uh, Worked on things uh, what I would consider false climate change solutions like uh, nuclear power. Fighting that, uh, I'm not a big advocate of biomass um, because burning is burning, and we need to quit burning stuff. So when I look about when I saw that the subject here was um, environmental, um, uh, envir- the, right to environment, the right to environment, I said, what does that mean? And to me, that goes back to common law the right of all people to clean air, to clean water, and to clean land. We all have that. And you start thinking about what is sustainability. Well, sustainability is living more simply so others can simply live type of thing, that we should uh, have the lightest footprint that we can in order for future generations to uh, exist and to thrive. And um, he was talking about, Nick, about um, Native American lands and First, First Nation. And, you know, most of our uranium is mined in either the Southwest on Native American lands, or in the Dakotas on Native American lands. And that, it it just devastates them. And so I picked up something from uh, the Iroquois uh, a number of years ago and it's called Seventh Generation. And I misinterpreted it at first. And some people think that, oh, seventh generation, we need to base our decisions (coughs) on seven generations into the future. And that's what I thought. I said, well, that sounds good. You know, seven generations is a long time. But then someone says, no, Mike, you've got that wrong. What the seventh generation is, you're the middle generation. You need to base your decisions on what your parents, your grandparents, and your great-grandparents would think of that decision, and then also how it affects your children, your <coughs> grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren. <coughs> and so if you base these, d- uh, and, and Ty earlier was talking about history, you know, we've been burning coal and burning fossil fuels for almost a couple hundred years now since the Industrial Revolution. They didn't know it at the time. We know it, you know, and we know it now, and, and it's time that we really <coughs> start to face up to that because of what it will do to our future generations. And when I see it, it being a, a political activist or a lobbyist for the last 10 years, I r- know how strong the political process is, and it, uh, sometimes I have great hope, and other times I'm very depressed, because we do live in the greatest nation that money can buy, the political system. <coughs> and when you are up against the Koch brothers and the candidates that they fund. And the Koch brothers, where did their money come from? Came from the fossil fuel industries. And they're willing to spend almost a billion dollars on the next presidential election. Well, they represent the forces of the status quo. They've been making so much money on burning fossil fuels that they don't want things to change. So our job is to either change our political system or to generate enough people and interest to throw the people that want the status quo out of office and get the people that want a clean clean energy future get them into office. So that's kind of what I've worked on for 10 years. I hope to bring that ethic not only in energy but in other forms of environmental sustainability uh, to the county level because all politics are local.
0: And you work very heavily on wind energy and on solar energy. Tell us something about the um, temperament in Iowa government, Iowa yeah. business. What, what do you think uh, the landscape looks like now?
6: Well, uh, large wind has been great, been very bipartisan issue in the state of Iowa. The, uh, we have about 8,000 jobs in the state of Iowa in the wind industry. That's been great for the state of Iowa. Both Republicans and Democrats have supported that. Um, the wind industry also, um, like a lot of renewable energies, uh, they don't exist, but they're helped with tax credits. There's a production tax credit that's a national tax credit that's I- expired currently. And so uh, <coughs> the wind industry has gone through waves of uh, a peak and uh, boom and bust. And right now, it's uh, on a national level, it's going on the bust side because of the um, direction and the, the influence of the fossil fuel industry. Remember that they're not in the uh, business of... Um, producing energy, they're in the business of producing profits. So wind energy, large wind energy is great in Iowa, and it has been. What we're fighting right now is transmission. uh, For us to really to reach uh, the goals that we need to on climate change, in areas that can uh, produce renewable energy, we need to overproduce. Iowa can produce so much more wind than we already are, but then we need to export that wind to load centers, like to Chicago, the Twin Cities, and, and places beyond so we need more transmission. So that's a big fight with wind energy right now. Solar is doing very well in the state of Iowa, especially small solar, distributed solar. I'd like to see a a solar array on every southern-facing roof in Johnson County and the state of Iowa, and that's distributed generation, and we have a right to that. People have the right to produce their own energy and get paid for that. That's another right that we didn't mention, but uh, small wind as well. Small wind goes very well with small solar. Uh, they fit like a hand and a glove together. They mesh well. Wind blows predominantly at night and during the winter months, where sun obviously doesn't shine at, at night. And it's uh, strongest during the summer months. So when you put a, uh, a combination system of a small wind turbine and small solar panels, they blend very well together. And we should see, we would hope to see more of that, especially in the rural areas of Iowa, which is where you want to site a wind turbine. Mm-hmm. You don't want to put them in the city. Yeah. You know, they don't work well. Yeah.
0: Well, well Andrew, so we've been talking about future generations, right? You're one of the younger people on this program panel tonight, and you're part of that future generation. You're an undergrad now, and you're very involved in sustainability, environmental causes, and so on. Why is that a passion you've uh, taken up in your life?
7: Um, Because sustainability means a moral obligation, and there's a moral imperative that comes with it. It goes so far beyond just development, and it goes so far beyond just planning planting the garden, it is really a call to action, to arms, to assert ourselves as the people that we want to be, and to live a better and more decent life, and to extend those virtues and those values so far beyond ourselves. And so when people say sustainability, it's just not a hobby, it's just not something you study, but it's everything, all-encompassing future of our society, and of our identities as well.
0: Yeah, what do you do within the Office of Sustainability? Um, Outreach
7: and engagement. Mm -hmm. I have the fine fortune of working with some of the the greatest student leaders ever. They concern themselves with both the environment, with volunteers, with activism, with advocacy around some of the probably just the most terrifying issues that we have to face and that we're going to face as this generation comes up with this. Mm -hmm. And I'm always impressed, and I'm always just taken aback by such their engagement and the sacrifices that they make, knowing that the future may actually be really unclear for them. And so outreach and engagement is what I'm involved in. I uh, get to work out at the student garden to do best organic practices out there, um, get work with the Environmental Coalition to raise awareness and advocacy. Next week, we get to do a climate workshop, which where we get to take, or uh, sorry, a carbon footprint workshop, where we get to take um, students from classes and just really ed- try to educate them about what a carbon footprint is and what are some of the low-hanging barriers that you can really change in your life just to add that drop to the bucket. Um, I get to work with bike friends to advocate for cycling, recreational, but leisure, and then also the social justice features of cycling, as well as many other student organizations.
0: Do you find that students are are very, very interested in this, in this range of issues that you're talking about? It's not a fringe thing that's sort of like the first time they've ever heard it, right? No,
7: not anymore. And that's so endearing and so great, especially in the the majors that I am with environmental policy and planning, that these people are dedicated to both studying these issues, but then hopefully forwarding their education and taking it out of the ivory tower and bringing it to the world because this is where it starts. This isn't an academic discussion any longer. It's for everybody because it impacts such a large and broad audience. Mm
0: -hmm. And what's your study area?
7: Oh, political science and environmental policy. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Very good. Very good. So you you want to go into policy work eventually or Um,
7: that's uh that's a good <laughs> question. Uh, I don't necessarily know what I want to be doing, but I know I wanna be trying incredibly hard each and every day.
6: Can't do it for the money. <laughs> 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 uh,
7: one of the one of my professors actually said that very same sentiment is that there's nothing worth doing in this life that you're actually gonna make a lot of money on. And that's just one of those things that has stuck with me that money is not going to be an important feature of my life, and hopefully it's not an important feature of everybody's life. To rip off Citizen Kane's line, it's not hard to make a lot of money if all you want to do is to make a lot of money, and there's so much more important to that.
0: One of the things you told me in a communication we had before the program was that you wanted to concentrate on the word future, and what is uh, sustainability in the context of time? Most definitely, and
7: Mike uh, uh, talked about that with the Seventh Generations, and that the promise of sustainability, at least to us, and at least around to my age group, and then people younger than me, was not sacrificing the well-being of the individuals alive today and sacrificing the resources of those in the future. Well, this is the future. Um, How far we can kick this can down the road, I don't think it can go any farther. Um, This is the generation that we are experiencing climate change. The residency time of CO2 and other greenhouse gases um, is around 100 years. The different ones, um, methane being around 25 to 50 years, water vapor being just around 10. But these are things that have such far-reaching consequences that go so far beyond and that we're already locked into this. That there's little, if anything, we can do to address some of these atmospheric issues, and that we're just going to have to adapt or to mitigate it or simply suffer by it. And so, the idea of sustainability as a promise is more and more seeming like a farce to me. That now it's not an option of trying to become more sustainable, but it's the j- option of trying to adapt to this change that's already in process and already in place. And so, sustainability in the future context well, this is the future, this is our experience. And this is our world
0: right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we were talking before the program, um, uh, we had discussed uh, both talking about environment as a right and energy as a right. And you've addressed this a little bit in your comments, too, that that uh, not everybody has equal access to energy. Not mm-hmm. everybody creates as much damage, if we can call it that, to the environment mm-hmm. as, as others. How do we make that case? How does, wh- Whom do we talk to in order to? Um, uh, you know, in, in the first segment, um, multiple billions of people were mentioned as being without access to electricity, right? Um, and then there are some of us here who have more than we could ever possibly use. And um, this kind of, in there, I, I'm sure there are always inequities in some way in, in the, when you look at the entire world and what we all have and don't have. And um, yet if there were two or three principal pleas you could make to Government or to the UN, what what would you what would you ask for? What kind of change do we need now in order for some kind of greater equity with both the environment and uh, and energy access?
6: Well, I'll start with that. The first thing we need to do, I think, is to uh, change our political process and, and give uh, the democracy back to the people. We need to overturn Citizens United, and we n- and that money is not speech, and people and corporations are not people. We need to then elect the best leaders. Uh, It's got to be about ideas and leadership and not about who has the most money from the Koch brothers that gets elected. So if we can return democracy to the way it's supposed to be, then maybe we have a fighting chance. If we don't, then our goose may already be cooked. Um,
5: Just to to echo that, I think um, uh, there's a difference between asking for something and demanding it or mm-hmm. taking it and I, I draw inspiration from the, the many struggles uh, which in some cases are united, other, other cases sort of discrete, uh, particularly uh, indigenous struggles to defend the land um, and um, uh, in defending the land not only uh, land sort of as a physical or material thing but also defending way, different ways of relating to the land. Um, um, uh, thinking about land as um, uh, Glenn Coulthard, a, a, a young uh, Dené uh, scholar, has written about land as a system of reciprocal relations and obligations, and I think that's a really uh, sort of important shift away from thinking about land simply as commodity or property um, resource to thinking about, uh, and and also one that breaks down the, the distinction between humans um, and and nature. There they're enmeshed. Um, as Barbara was, uh, was talking about. And so the, the sort of wisdom um, that has been cultivated over uh, millennia, uh, in, in many cases by indigenous people, uh, I think um, uh, offers some, some really important insights and guidance <coughs> in, this, in this present, um, <coughs> present moment and figuring out often with, uh, I, one thing I've found with the Anthropocene is that it does tend to have sort of a forward-looking orientation. It's about imagining the next 10,000 years um, less about um, um, understanding the, the previous uh, 10,000, I think, uh, the, the forms of ecological knowledge that have been cultivated over um, uh, hundreds, uh, if not thousands of years, um, um, uh, something that we really need to think about in, in looking both forward and, and backward and, and figuring out ways in which uh, that knowledge, those uh, sort of other ways of, of living, um, relating to uh, to uh, others uh, might transform um, uh, transform our lives today.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there anything you'd want to add, uh, Andrew?
5: I guess I'm just going
7: to shoot for low-hanging fruit, and just please don't deny it. Yeah, <laughs> when you yeah. when you deny it, you deny the struggle that mm-hmm. we all face and that we need to face head-on. And mm-hmm. so by denying it, you're just not looking ignorant. You're not looking stupid. You're just being offensive. You're denying. The struggle of all future generations in tackling this issue and having to adapt to this, and something that no 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 other previous generation has yet had to
0: do. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Andrew Hurst and Mike Carberry and Nick Brown. And, did you want to say something else? Yeah. And and, and <laughs> Nick Brown. And uh, yeah, yeah. No. Thank you so much. What an what an interesting uh, conversation. And um, thank you all for being here too listen to part two in this three-part series, uh, stick with us for the next one when we'll be looking at at um, uh, some art, literature, some... Uh um, interpretive scholarship related to the environment, to um, the Anthropocene and, and energy and what, it, what we've done with it, what we've done to ourselves with it. Um, so stay with us for that, please. World Canvas Programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Program's website, which is international.uiowa.edu and you can check out scene at icfilmscene.org. I'm Joan Kerr. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from film scene in downtown Iowa City. Happy to have you join us for the third part in this series, Energy, Cultures, and the Age of the Anthropocene. Uh, before we start, I want to invite you to join us for these live shows, if you can, uh, or catch them later on UITV, on YouTube, or iTunes. You can also find them on the International Program's website, which is international.uiowa.edu. And to learn more about FilmScene, go to icfilmscene.org. So we've entitled this segment of our series, The Human Touch. And we'll be looking at the Anthropocene through the eyes and imaginations of artists and writers, photographers, and interpretive scholars, people who are chroniclers of our times and times past of a different sort. Um, We'll be asking what the arts have to contribute to a conversation that in many ways seems to be science driven. Um, So joining us are uh, two people uh, that I'm very uh, proud to introduce, Erica Damon is a University of Iowa student just next to me here. Uh, she is getting a PhD in an interdisciplinary PhD program in the environmental humanities. And so nice to have you here, Erica. Yeah, Thank thanks. you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, next to her is Eric Godal, who is a, an associate professor in the University of Iowa Department of English. Great pleasure to have you here,
8: Eric. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Thanks.
0: Thank you. Uh, so I think we will start perhaps with you Erica and discuss an art piece that you have done that in fact is going to be shown in Berlin. I'm not quite sure when the installation occurs but I know that it'll be up for a year with Berlin or Munich. Munich, Munich. Yeah. Munich. Uh but y- an international uh show. Yeah. Um very cool. Please tell us what this art piece is and how it relates to this thing we're calling the anthropocene.
4: Okay, wonderful. Um so I didn't know I- it related to the Anthropocene until I had some time to think about it and actually pitch it at a conference as something that related to the Anthropocene. But the piece is about three lakes in northwest Iowa that were drained at the turn of the 20th century uh, using 40 head of oxen and a double moldboard lister, p- lister plow. And at the base of these lakes that are now cornfields are these wind turbines. And I was trying to think about how to think about human history in that place uh, and do some sort of community engagement project that was also um, visually or aesthetically interesting. Mm-hmm. So I came up with this map that is a topographic map but is also a puzzle piece. Uh, so each block is about the size of a children's building block and each piece has the top of a topographic map on it so when you put it all together you see the indentations of the lakes that are remnants from the Pleistocene epoch mm-hmm. or era I don't <laughs> <laughs> <My> <laughs> stratigraphers <we're> <laughs> in the room please don't don't <laughs> correct me um, so then if you were to flip all of the pieces over um, there's a painting of oxen along with the wind turbines and so uh, the installation invited uh, local schoolchildren and adults to play with it and try to put it together and uh, kind of by chance what i realized is people would sit down and spend a great deal of time with it and they really took to it and they would sit down and they would have conversations about you know their parents farmland or the fact that their dad was putting in more tile because the the soil was wetter for a longer amount of time or that they had a favorite place that they used to be able to swim in but they could not anymore because of it wasn't clean mm-hmm. so these really kind of difficult questions that are related to the anthropocene were being brought up just by chance and really comfortably, in a way that I thought, "Whoa, oh, this is a real opportunity." Yeah. So that piece um, was accepted to a show at the Deutsches Museum in Munich about the Anthropocene and specifically for playing with and through the Anthropocene. So this idea of play and these very difficult environmental or ecological questions that we have. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Well, and I know you're working on your your PhD, and and yeah. this whole business of games and play is is really foremost in your thought, isn't it?
4: Yeah, um, you know, I'm working on putting together several different types of games with the idea that play might be uh, a platform for exploring difficult, com- difficult conversations around climate change in the Anthropocene. So that these games would be uh, an, a platform, or an opportunity to invite public mm-hmm. uh, to play mm-hmm. and then to have a conversation as well. Mm-hmm. So... One of them, um, with the help of my advisor, is uh, an idea about Scrabble or a, a riff off of Scrabble. So uh, word word construction and species extinction. Uh-huh. And <laughs> so you would remove one letter at a time uh, and see if people can still start to construct their words in Scrabble form but in relation to, to other species being removed. Wow. And then the other is a memory game. Uh, and so you would... On the back face, remember memory, mm-hmm. like there'd be an apple or a basket, and you would like flip them over. Uh, these would include uh, non human species uh, who live in our gut or make up our soil, folks that we're really dependent upon but we don't see very often. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Hmm. <laughs> and, and you told me something about a sow bug. What yeah. was that all about?
4: So last, last semester, I had the opportunity to work with the Climate Narrative Project here at the University of Iowa's Office of Sustainability. And I interviewed a sow bug. So a sow bug is, is anyone familiar? Yeah, okay. So they're, they're very small, and they are um, part of the soil uh, decomposition group who make our soil. And so <laughs> part of that project was interviewing a sow bug and finding out what exactly do you do on a daily basis? What is your world like? How did last year's 55-inch <laughs> frost line affect you? Things like that. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, I, you know, had someone speak as a sow bug, and then I drew a picture and, or did a film of a sow bug, and yeah. delivered it as a, as an interview. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, so you have an MFA in sculpture, mm-hmm. and then the reason you're going after this kind of very creative. I didn't know about this program mm-hmm. in the environmental humanities, which I guess sounds as though it's, it's very much designed by the individual person who wants to to, to put the PhD program together. But, but maybe you can tell us how you went from sculpture into this environmental um, humanities mm-hmm. program.
4: Yeah, so um, many people in environmental h- humanities programs in other um, universities come from creative writing backgrounds or an English background, perhaps philosophy. Um, but for me, I came out of a critical art practice that was already engaged with, uh, or out in the community, and I was already concerned about environmental questions. So, it became a natural progression to do critical art practice with scholarly or research work. Um, so it was, it was an opportunity to take classes in geography, urban and regional planning, American studies, uh, anything that had to do with our environment and human meaning making. So that those things come together in the environmental humanities. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, will you have a chance to see your piece when it's on display in Munich? I'm hoping to go there. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm hoping to go there uh, in September. Mm-hmm. So, wow, well, terrific. Well,
0: well, let's move down the line here and talk. So you're from the Department of English, right. and I know that you've been working on some books related to environmental writing over a period of time. Can, can you tell us a little bit about this research you've been doing?
8: Sure. And I also hope to talk about the class I've been teaching. But um, yeah, so I'm a scholar of 18th and 19th century British literature. And uh, from the perspective of the Anthropocene, that kind of sense of a literary period starts to take on a very different kind of connotation. Because if we follow people like Paul Crutzen, who identifies the Industrial Revolution as really a geological break as well as a literary break, then it asks us to think about how literary history and geological history begin to coordinate. So even studying, uh, in some sense, a very kind of traditional area like 18th century British poetry and, and the rise of the novel and uh, the rise of the periodical essay begins to take on a kind of flavor of having a much more deeper and uh, uh, far-reaching kind of environmental history. Um, some of the work I've done has looked at uh, certain genres of expression during the 18th century, the periodical essay, Georgic poetry. I've looked at... Um, thinking about climate and climate change. In the 18th century, there was a lot of thinking about climate change. They tended to look at the effect of deforestation and uh, the drainage of wetlands as having very uh, determinable effects on at least microclimates. The difference was they tended to view this as a very benevolent activity and saw it as part of kind of uh, civilizing the planet, in some sense. And during the period of the uh, French Revolution and a lot of the utopian thinking that goes on around that, both in France and in England, A lot of people begin to imagine a future state in which, in fact, the world's climates will be completely altered to suit humanity, and in fact allow a kind of realization or apotheosis of the human spirit. Mm -hmm. So uh, just simply doing a kind of intellectual history of climate change um, can orient ourselves, I think, towards thinking about the ways in which we view our own relationship now as geological agents on the planet.
0: So tell us about this course you're teaching.
8: Oh, yeah. So Mm. I'm teaching a course (laughs) on literature of the Anthropocene, uh, because I've been doing a lot of this mostly in the terms of my own scholarship and working on different books and essays. Um, But I was really keen, particularly because of the uh, symposium that's coming up to offer a course for undergraduates to bring them into the conversation, Mm -hmm. but still basing it on what my own expertise is. So this is a course in 18th and 19th century British literature, except we're entitling it Literature of the Anthropocene. We're reading works like uh, uh, Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe, Charlotte Bronte's Shirley, uh, but we're reading them not simply as part of a kind of cultural history, but almost in part of a kind of environmental and even, dare we say, at a kind of geological history. Uh, and the students and I have been exploring the ways in which not only the attitudes expressed, say, by Robinson Crusoe on his island as he transforms this... Uh, this landscape to suit his own needs, but the impulse and ideas and communications that enable someone like Daniel Defoe sitting in London to begin to imagine this world, uh, we're looking at the kinds of uh, environmental, economic, and increasingly industrial forces that enable new forms of expression. And the intent, as we've been moving through this literature, is not really to tut-tut and condemn uh, the British imperialists and colonialists. There's a place for that, and it's not not completely outside the range of our conversation. But one of the things I've been trying to emphasize with the students, and that they've been helping me to realize, is that we need to also understand the enormous appeal of a lot of this vision. Um, Robinson Crusoe uh, was, for many people, a kind of apotheosis of autonomous individualism and a kind of self-realization of a new rising middle class. Uh, we've been looking at Gilbert White, uh, who does a fascinating natural history of Selburn, which is a small parish south of London. I figured it out. It's about half the size of Iowa City. And he spends four or five years simply recording uh, bird migrations, flora and fauna all around the area, and keeping detailed, detailed records of this, but communicating with other naturalists, not only in the British Isles, but elsewhere, and beginning to link his observations with observations of other people, so that collectively they begin to understand patterns not only of migration, but of species extinction, and environmental change. And on the one hand, there's a kind of wonder to someone like White, who's able to do this already in the 1780s, even as there also is, again in the context of our own situation, a kind of ominous tone as the uh, processes of anthropogenic environmental transformation that he's already been able to record as accelerating mm-hmm. uh, we can now see as part of a kind of unfortunate lineage that we're uh, we've inherited ourselves well, and then of course in the next century
0: you have Charles Darwin
8: coming along and that that uh, the presence of all that conversation must
0: have affected Literature. Absolutely,
8: meaning. right. So, a lot of people have been uh, thinking about the effect of Darwin and also uh, Charles Lyell, who was a uh, prominent geologist whose thought very much affected Darwin as well, as leading into everything from uh, the development of the realist novel uh, to new forms of poetry that become quite uh, prominent in the 19th century, the way the 19th century begins to think about epic and these larger narratives and its relationship uh, to changing landscapes. Part of the research I've been doing has been into a very curious body of literature called the Poems of Ossian, which was a rendition of Gaelic oral poetry. And one of the things you see going on in the 19th century is a number of people beginning to try to situate this poetry within the landscape of Ireland and Scotland and northern England, even as they start to record the geomorphological uh, and industrial transformations going on all around them. So Darwin's notion of the evolution of species, Lyell's notion of the kind of transformation of landscapes over time begin to also affect the way people start to think about antiquarian literature uh, at the same period. And you see all of these kinds of conversations uh, intersecting. And not only intersecting in terms of a sense of human history, but also a sense of ethical obligation.
0: Mm -hmm. So you've both heard the earlier uh, discussions we've had in in this program uh, about you know, a sort of a moral stance uh, toward future generations and those those living today, you know, our responsibilities for environmental justice and so on. Um, does does that come through this literature that you're talking about? There, is there...
8: I would say yes. And yes? I, I, there's an anecdote I've been wanting to share. A, a student of mine who I don't think is here and I'm not going to name him anyway, but wrote a wonderful <laughs> essay about a week ago. <laughs> We've been looking at Georgic poetry. So Virgil, the Latin poet, wrote, eclogues, he wrote the Aeneid, the great empi- uh, epic of the Roman Empire. He also wrote the Georgic poems, which are all poems about farming and agriculture. And oddly enough, in the 18th century, there's a huge revival of Georgic poetry. Everybody starts writing Georgic poetry again. And again, it also has to do with the uh, awareness of being at the heart of an increasingly global empire uh, and a kind of ethical obligation to care for the land. Mm-hmm. Well, the opening lines of Virgil's Georgic talk about making the crops rejoice. And my student, who hails from Newton, Iowa, um, thought about the oddity of making crops, which as we know in Iowa are really a commodity, uh, making commodities rejoice. Mm -hmm. And becoming aware of the kinds of ethics and lack of ethics, and getting back to the last panel's discussion of environmental justice and injustice, involved in the kind of plant closings and exploitations (coughs) of the landscape that have been an unfortunate part of Iowa history. And thinking about this kind of mandate of Georgic poetry To not simply celebrate the wild places of nature, but to let the crops, let the commodities, let the product of human labor rejoice in a more sustainable fashion. So I think um, one of my heroes, Madame de Stahl, said every work of literary criticism is a work of ethics. And I think every time we start to look into this literature, both of the past (coughs) and present, we're inevitably confronted with uh, various questions of ethical obligation.
0: Well, we had earlier spoken as well, and you said that you wanted to talk about this larger question of the humanities. What does the humanities have to say about things like the Anth- Anthropocene and um, um, you know changes around us now, changes in the past? What what do the humanities have to say about these things that some people would put in a scientific box or mm-hmm. in a um, political box?
8: Well, think about Erica's puzzle, mm-hmm. right, which mm-hmm. is a wonderful kind of hands-on and physical. Um, material expression of the intersection of geological history, of industrial history, of human history, and all through a very kind of creative and uh, expressive form. And what the humanities often do is look at the history of human imagination. Uh, Science tells us a lot about the history of planetary systems, both large and small. The humanities looks not only at the um, aesthetic potential of the human species, but also the history of how we've imagined things in the past and how we might imagine things in the future. And I think one of the real benefits of the humanities, particularly in a kind of historical perspective, whether it's cultural history or geological history, um, is to allow us to consider the ways in which the forms by which we've imagined our situation in the past have both served us well and also have not served us uh, to the benefit of ourselves and of the planet, and to begin to try to push against those forms of imagination and think about new possibilities. And that can be done in the arts, and it can be done in scholarship, I believe, as well, as we both look at the arts and literature of the past, present, and, and now the future. Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm. Well, Eric, I, I'm picking up on that point from uh, Eric, um, wh- what do you think that your, your role as an artist is, as a sculptor is? Um, presumably, I'm, I'm just guessing, um, maybe some of your work doesn't have. A message, if we might think of this as a message, a, a sort of a teaching component. I don't know if mm-hmm. it does or doesn't. But for those times when you're doing a work like this piece that's going to be shown in in Germany, uh, this puzzle, um, there are so many layers to that 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 um, involve interpretation, uh, explanation, investigation, uh, new ima- ways to imagine things. Um, do you do you see that as what you do in each of your art creations, uh, whether they might relate to the environment or whether they or, or just something else?
4: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, d- I find it very difficult to, um, for some time i found it very difficult to divorce what I do from questions of the environment. Um, Jane Bennett is a scholar of um, materiality, and she talks about turning towards the geologic, and that artists, and thinkers, and writers, and creative folk who don't take into account the geologic risk being irrelevant, or dangerous at best, or worst. Mm-hmm. And so I think I can use her same sort of logic for environmental questions or the Anthropocene as a much larger umbrella. Mm -hmm. That most of what I make Mm -hmm. intersects with questions of the environment, humans, non-humans, maybe water quality, Mm -hmm. uh, fields, Mm -hmm. (laughs) old technology, new technology, but always in that same vein.
0: Well, and also you're using materials, you know, you're creating things from something else, in this case, wooden blocks, or maybe uh, rocks, you know, whatever substance you're using Mm -hmm. um, comes from something, comes from some place, and you're you're disturbing its natural form in order to make a new statement, so, yeah.
4: yeah. Paying attention to, like, making work, but also paying attention to what you're using to make Mm -hmm. the work is important, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. And is this field that, that many people here at Iowa, at the University of Iowa in the art area, are there others like you who are involved in thinking about things in this, (coughs) in this um, very real environmental sense?
4: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's a growing number of us, there's some in this room right now, who are doing some really great work around climate. Um, and it's certainly a conversation that's being had at the School of Art and Art History. And outside, absolutely, yeah. And looking for creative and new ways of addressing very serious issues and taking, um, as Andrew said, out of the ivory tower and into the community, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so.
0: Yeah, how do your students take to this this whole class? Yeah. I imagine some of the students who signed up for a class on uh, literature of the Anthropocene are kind of wondering, huh? You know, yeah. what is that? <laughs> yeah.
8: The first day of class, uh, before I even started, someone asked me a question. She said, what is the Anthropocene? And I thought, OK, that's where we're starting here. Uh, some of the students have come in already very uh, primed to, to think about these questions, environmental. Others took it because it met on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, at 1030 to 1120. Um, and that's fine. I, I kind of, in fact, as a teacher, kind of welcomed that kind of variety. Um, I have to say, and you know, some of them are here, and maybe some of them will listen. It's been an exceptionally good group of students. They've really helped me think this through. This is the first time I've taught this body of literature in this configuration. And they've been very open to kind of looking at the literature itself, seeing what's there, and then beginning to link it with larger questions. We started the semester off by reading Elizabeth Colbert's book, The Sixth Extinction, mm-hmm. uh, which has a lot of interesting information about our present environmental condition. is also a wonderful intellectual history of the 18th and 19th centuries, which is why I chose it. And toggling back and forth between Elizabeth Colbert's unnatural history, The Sixth Extinction, and something like Gilbert White's natural history of Selburn, or moving between her discussions of ocean acidification and Robinson Crusoe, and then moving around campus and going and visiting the Natural History Museum, special collections at the library, and next week a field trip I'm particularly looking forward to, the power plant here at the university, um, to begin to understand the ways in which we ourselves are caught up in some of the very same systems. I imagine has been eye-opening for some of the students, but they, I, it sounds like a, a cliche, but they really are helping me learn about this material as mm-hmm. much as I am helping them learn. It's, it's part of kind of piecing this all together and trying to figure out uh, what it all means. I always tell them that literature doesn't give us any answers, but it helps us formulate the right questions, mm-hmm. and I think that's what we're kind of engaged with in this class.
0: And isn't there also a question about, uh, you know, you mentioned Robinson Crusoe and the guy sort of taking hold of his environment and shaping a space and so on, this sort of individual aspiration and, you know, uh, um, I, I, um, I can see how that's, you know, very appealing in that book and, and otherwise. Those of us who grow gardens in our backyards, you know, you're very proud of this little space you've, you've um, transformed. But, but th- with the Anthropocene, we're actually thinking not so much about an individual but about what we do as as civilizations, as That's cultures, right. as...
8: Well, one of the fascinating things about Robinson Crusoe mm-hmm. is that while the myth is the individual on the island, mm-hmm. in fact, it's well aware, anyone who reads the novel closely, that he's benefiting from a global system of mm-hmm. commerce and exchange, mm-hmm. not only a vast slave trade, of which he's a participant, yes. but enormous movement of commodities back mm-hmm. and forth. And the last part of the novel, when he leaves the island, he r- turns it into a colony and begins mm-hmm. to profit enormously on it. And Mm -hmm. so the rise of a kind of global capitalism, uh, of which London is clearly an epicenter, is very much also part of what Robinson Crusoe is all about. Um, And then the way in which the novel and the myth, as it were, of the individual autonomous (coughs) uh, person creating his or her own Mm -hmm. world out of his own environment becomes, in some sense, a kind of fuel justifying and rationalizing increasingly uh, widespread and even planetary transformations. Wow, are you going to teach this course again? Oh, yeah. Oh, good. (laughs) I think you've probably
0: inspired a lot of interest here. This is really, really great. And you, Erica, how much longer do you have in your program now? Forever. Um, (laughs) No, I
4: think, um, let's Mm -hmm. say two years.
0: That's great. Oh well, thank you so much for for explaining what you're doing, for sharing some of the work you're you're involved in, Eric. This has really been great. So Eric Godal and Erica Damon have been our guests in this segment, and uh, thank you all for being here for these uh, three parts of this series on energy cultures in the age of the Anthropocene. Uh, we've been at Film Scene here in downtown Iowa City, a nonprofit cinema arts organization, and you can join us for these live broadcasts if you like, or catch them on UITV on iTunes on. Um the International Program's website, and uh, we invite you to our next program, which will be here in this space on April 28th at 5 o'clock. Very interesting topic, and and I hope you can join us, the Arab Spring in a Global Context. So we will see you next time. Good night, and thanks for being with us.